All right, well, welcome to Mount Airy Baptist Church. Thank you for tuning in, and everyone here, take your Bibles, and let's open God's Word to the book of Malachi. We've started uh, the last couple of Wednesday nights looking at this book in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, the book right before Matthew in the New Testament, so it's kind of easy to find. Uh, Malachi. Uh, Last week, we talked about the first five verses. We just did a, a short passage of Scripture as we dealt with those First five verses where God says in verse 2, I have loved you. That that's the way the book starts out. God emphasizing that he loves them. But also we noticed that in verse 1 it says an oracle. Do, do any of you remember what that name oracle means? I can't hear you, I'm sorry. Rebuke. There's a burden. Rebuke. Those two words tied together that... That God has a burden and He's rebuking His people. But yet, even though this is going to be a rebuke, even though this is going to be something where God has this burden that He's talking about through the prophet Malachi, He emphasizes, I have loved you. Now, we closed last week uh, by talking about the whole concept of election. And Greg Murdoch reminded me of something after the Bible study uh, that I had said years ago, apparently, and I'd forgotten about it. Once he said it, I remembered it. Uh, but he said, I wrote down in somewhere, and I remember that you said this, Pastor, and he reminded me, so I wanted to pass on to you, uh, because it really does kind of summarize my view of election, uh, and that is this statement that he reminded me of. Uh, my view is this, God chooses everybody, but not everybody chooses God. That summarizes for me. The, the concept of election. God chooses everybody, but not everybody chooses God. So that was last week. Now, tonight, I want to start with this word authentic. And I need you to give me some words that would uh, be synonyms for this word authentic. How would you describe authentic? Give me some other words that, that would be similar to that. Real. Real. Genuine. Give me one more. Original? Is that what you said? Did you look that up? <laughs> well, you had your phone right there. I thought you looked. I uh, know. All right, now. Huh? The real. <laughs> All right. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to flip that over. I think they're called antonyms, if, I'm, if I remember that correctly. What's the opposite of real? What's the opposite of genuine? Huh? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. A copy? All right. <clears throat> And, and it might just be a, an antonym of, of authentic, but give me one more, uh, whether it's original, what's the opposite of original? Or, or give me an antonym for authentic, one or the other. Phony, let's try phony. Is that P-H? Okay. Is it Y or E-Y? Y. Okay. Tonight I want to talk to you about in, in the book of Matthew, in the book of Malachi, God's call for us to be authentic. 
before you folks tuned in online, we were asking folks how long they had been going to church. I've been going to church 61 years. Um, someone in our congregation said they've been going to church for, an, for a year. Uh, whether we're going to church for one year or 61 years or whatever the number is for you, God's call is, is that for all of us that our walk is authentic. That our walk with Him is real. That it's genuine. Uh, that it's original. Now, now, what does authentic mean? It means that it's true. It's not, it's not fake. It's not phony. It's, it's real. So how does the Old Testament end? This is very interesting. How does the Old Testament end? What's the last book of the Old Testament? Well, it's Malachi. And what does God emphasize at the very first of that book? First, He says, I have loved you. But then he says, but let me tell you about this burden that I have. Let me tell you about this thing that I've noticed. And it's interesting when you get to the, to the end of the Old Testament, before the pages of the New Testament, of course there's a 400 year gap between Malachi and Matthew. But before you get into the New Testament, the, the Old Testament ends with God emphasizing, is your relationship with him authentic? Is it real? So I hope you have an outline, and I, we just, I, I thought we'd do it old school tonight, and we'll have this, that I'm going to draw some things, and we're going to write on an outline. Uh, here's what I want to do, is just walk through our text, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to go through the rest of chapter 1, and we're going to talk about God's call that you and I live authentic lives. So if you have your outline, you can fill in the blank. First of all, God calls us to be authentic in our profession, or you might put slash lifestyle. You could choose either word. God calls us to be authentic in our profession or in our lifestyle. Malachi begins this stinging indictment by basically setting a trap for the priest of the day. Every priest would have agreed to the first part of verse 6. Let's read the text. A son honors his father and a servant his master. The priest of that day, those were the people in this part of the text that Malachi is speaking to, that God is speaking to through Malachi. And the priest in that day would have heard that a son honors his father and a servant his master, and they would have agreed and said, that's right. Every priest would have agreed to that. Because in the Old Testament, the father was the spiritual leader of the house, and the father was the ruler of the house. He demanded and got respect and honor. It was just one of the foundations of the Jewish faith that you respected and honored the father of the house who was the leader, the ruler of the house. And in the same way that masters got respect because their servants were, it was demanded that they uh, would honor their masters. Anybody would have understood the first part of verse 6. But God then asked this very probing personal question. He says, if I am a father, slash heavenly father, if I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. Now watch this. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. God's asking a very probing question. 
Where is the respect due me? Where is my honor? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take a moment and, and have you read some verses and just look for something. And we're going to write down some things here on, on the text or on the, the board. I want you to read verses 6, 8, 10, and 14. Verses 6, 8, 10, and 14. And here's what I want you to look for. I want you to look in those verses, as you read those verses, I want you to look for the titles that Malachi used to describe God. What titles did Malachi use to describe God in verses 6, 8, 10, and 14? All right, so, just let me know as soon as you get there. What? What titles did Malachi use to describe God? Lord of hosts? Now, let me make sure I'm clear on this. Lord of hosts is in one translation. Other translations say the Lord Almighty. Is that, is that right? All right. Do you remember what, what we talked about last week about this about this name, Lord of Hosts. Do you remember what I said that really uh, means, where it came from? Yes. And it really originated in the days of um, Joshua. You start reading about the, the conquest of the Promised Land, and, and as the people of God went into the Promised Land, and, and they were fighting one army after another after another, God, beginning in that book, began to, the, God was referred to as the Lord of Hosts, or the Lord of the armies. That's really what the idea is behind that name, the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of the armies. Now what does Lord mean? He's the master. He's the ruler. And so in the book of Joshua, it's emphasizing that God is the one who's greater than any army you face. He's the Lord of the armies. He's the Lord of hosts. Or in my translation, it says, He is the Lord Almighty. How many times do you see this phrase, Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty, in those verses that I just gave you? In verses 6, 8, 10, and 14, how many times do you see that phrase, that title? How many? Four? Everybody agree with four? All right. All right, let's say, let's say, all right, look at this. You got five? Oh, verse 11. Okay, if we include verse 11, it would be 5. All right, let's just look at those, at those four verses. Four times we see this, this idea, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of the armies. And it's not just said one time. You've heard me say this many times. It's not just said once, but twice and three times and four times. The emphasis is, this is the Lord Almighty. This is the Lord of the armies. This is the Lord who is the greatest one of all. Now, the reason that title is significant because logic would tell you that the only appropriate response to such a great God would be honor and respect and reverence. The people of Malachi's day were doing just the opposite. They called God their father, they called God their master, but they did not live as if he was their father or their master. Their lifestyle was not authentic. Their profession was not authentic. 
And I want you to notice who this is directed to. Not just the people. But this is directed to the leader of the people. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? And if I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. The one who deserves respect. And now watch what he says. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. Which is a mind-boggling thought. It's you, O priest. You who show contempt for my name. Now God said in the opening verses, I have loved you. But then, He's essentially saying, but you have not been loving me. You have shown contempt for my name. You see, the problem with the priest and then eventually with the people is that they were claiming one thing and then living another. This happens all the time in today's world, doesn't it? Folks who claim that Jesus is their Lord and their Master, and yet many times that claim is only in title. They can talk about God, but they're not living like they know God. In fact, here's a lesson. I think it's on your notes here. Here's the lesson. There may be a blank to fill in. When God isn't as important to us as He ought to be, we end up faking it. But God is not fooled. In verse 6, it was so clear that, number one, the priests were faking it. And it was also so clear that God was not fooled. And as you read the rest of the text, the people were faking it. But it was clear that God knew that. And God was not fooled. Folks claim that Jesus is their Lord, but sometimes that claim is only a title that they've given God. They're not authentic in their relationship. I like this story. Maybe you've heard it before. It's an old story about the farmer who was telling his pastor how much he loved the Lord. As the pastor decided to put it to the test and he said, well, let me ask you something. If you had a hundred cows, would you give God ten of them? He said, yeah, yeah, I love God. I'd give him 10 cows. He said, okay, if you had 30 goats, would you give God three of them? He said, absolutely. Pastor said, if you had 10 pigs, would you give God one of them? He said, now wait a minute, preacher, you know I got 10 pigs. (laughs) There's a vast difference between what we say and how we live. Remember what Jesus said about this? Jesus once said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, the title, but don't do what I say? The contradiction in terms. God calls us to be authentic in our profession, authentic in our lifestyle. Let me ask you a question. I don't want you to give me a name. Don't give me a name. Let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever seen anyone who claimed to be a Christian, but it was so evident by their lifestyle that they weren't living like a Christian? I mean, have you ever, I mean, it's just so evident. It's like, well, they claim to be a Christian, but I mean, they're doing this, 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 this. It was so evident they're not living like a Christian. Anybody ever seen that? Raise your hand. You don't, don't tell me who it is. Okay. It's so evident to you, right? That's the way it is with God for all of our lives. It is so evident to God when we're not living what we tell Him we we believe. 
How does it make you feel when, when you see somebody and you know, you know they claim to be a Christian, but you know they're not living like a Christian? How does it make you feel? Imagine how it makes God feel. And he sees that in our lives. And that's what he saw in the lives of his people. And that's what he saw in the lives of the priest. So God calls us to be authentic in our profession or in our lifestyle. <laughs> but I don't know why I thought of this, but I saw a picture the other day. It was a car. I don't know where this was. It was a car and it had this huge, apparently somebody didn't have a truck. And they had this huge log going through their car, trying to carry it somewhere. And the caption was, on my way to help somebody get the speck out of their eye. <laughs> we all have that problem from time to time. We all, have to, we all have to ask ourselves, am I being authentic? Am I living and authentic? I, I didn't say, listen, listen. Don't leave here thinking you have to be perfect. Yeah, you, you won't fail every time if you, if you leave here thinking you have to be perfect. When, when we say authentic, we're not talking about perfect. We're talking about, I, I'm genuinely trying to live for the Lord. And I genuinely miss it sometimes. But I'm genuinely trying to live in a relationship with Jesus. That's what we're talking about when we talk about being authentic. And when you blow it, you admit it. You know why? Because most of the time... Well, all the time, God knows that you've blown it. Most of the time, people know you've blown it too. You think you're fooling them, but most of the time, you're not. So just be authentic. Just be real. Just be genuine. God wants us to be authentic in our profession. And then it really gets personal. Verses 7 through 11. Number 2, God wants us to be authentic in our gifts. In verse 7, Malachi gives a good example of how the people had really despised God's name. It is you, in the middle of verse 6, it is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? And, and here's God's answer. You've placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Now let's just stop there for a moment. The people had belittled God by offering Him things that were not worthy of Him. That's what the idea of defiled food is. You're, you're offering God something that He's worthy of far more than that. Something far better than that. And really this defilement was twofold. First of all, those making the offering were defiled. Verse 7 makes it clear because they were saying, look what it says, you place defiled food on my altar, but you ask how have we defiled you by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. The Lord's table would be that table uh, where the sacrifices would, would be prepared and be offered and, and they're, they're saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. But, and it's interesting that God says, listen, uh, before we talk about what, what you've offered, can we talk about you who is making the offering? There's a divine principle here that hasn't changed. God inspects the offerer. I don't know if that's a real word. God inspects the offerer as much as he does the offering. Does that make sense? That God looks at the heart of the one making the offering before he looks at what's in that person's hand. 
Walter Kaiser said, God inspects men's hearts before he looks at what they have brought in their hands. In other words, you and I can defile what we bring to God by what's in our heart. We can defile that solo we're going to sing because of what's in our heart. We can defile the the financial gift we're going to give because of what's in our heart. We can defile the message we're trying to teach because of what's in our heart. So those making the offerings, they were defiled. And then secondly, the offerings themselves were defiled. Look at verse 8. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says, what's that, that title? Says who? Yeah. Now, would, you, would you take note that these people were doing the religious things they were supposed to be doing? They were still, quote, going to church. They'd call it the temple. We call it church. They were still going to church. They were still giving their offerings. They were still offering the sacrifices they were supposed to offer. Watch this. They were checking all the boxes. Every week, they were checking all the boxes. But you know what they're offering God? The leftovers. They were giving God the leftovers. Here's the lesson. This is on your notes. When we give others our best and give God leftovers, we prove what our priorities really are. In other words, the animals, as they're described in verses 8, the animals that they were offering were no sacrifice at all. They were the animals they wanted to get rid of. There was no sacrifice there. Perhaps the best way to understand this outrageous action is to think in these terms. If, If Governor McMaster came to your home and he came to your house for dinner, how do you think he would feel if you dug in the back of your refrigerator and got that, that sandwich that was left over from three or four days ago and had mold on it? And you got that out and said, well, it's just for the governor. It, it'll be fine. And you got filet mignon in there cooking on the stove that you were getting ready to eat. But you decided, this is just for the, dig something out of the back of the refrigerator. It's just for the governor. It'll be fine. That would be such an insult. And that's exactly the, what, the story that is used here. Look at verse, uh, middle of verse 8. Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Malachi gives us this illustration. He said, listen, would you take that to the government? Would you offer them something like that? Why would you give it to God? You wouldn't even give it to the government. Imagine writing a letter that said, Dear sir, please accept this sick cow in lieu of the taxes I owe you. I hope the old bag recovers and will prove more useful to you than me. And I hope that you can get some use out of her. By the way, could you come fix my road? You think the government would be real happy with that? No, I don't think so. Malachi then makes this statement. Everybody think about this. Malachi says, Why do you think God is? Why do you think it's okay to offer God that which costs you nothing? Why do you think it's okay to offer God leftovers? 
If God is God, see if you agree with this. If God is God, does He not deserve the best that we have? God does not want, nor does He deserve, the leftovers in our life. Remember the story of David? David sinned and he wanted to offer a sacrifice. Would you put your finger there in Malachi? Would you go way over in the Old Testament and find the, the book of 2 Samuel? Second Samuel chapter 24. David had sinned and he wanted to offer a sacrifice and it says in 2 Samuel 24 verse 18 On that day Gad went to David and said Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And then Aruna looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him and he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, let the Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna then, Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24 is the key verse. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. In the days of Malachi, that's exactly what they were offering God. They were offering God that which really cost them nothing. And I want you to see God's response to this type of dedication. One of the most shocking things you will find in the Bible, or maybe I should say it this way, one of the most shocking things you'll find God saying in the Bible is in verse 10. God responds to, to the way that they've been offering Him uh, these, these uh, sick, lame animals. God says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that they would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Basically, God says, I wish somebody would have the guts enough to shut the doors of the temple. Would you look on your outline? Do you see that picture there that I put on your outline? That was deliberate. That's, that's kind of the, the graphic for the whole series. But I put it on your outline tonight because you see those doors? Those represent the doors of the temple. And they're shut. That's the graphic for the whole series. God says, I'm so tired of your complacency. Treating me as if I'm not God. Offering me that which does not cost you anything. Trying to give me the leftovers of your life. God says, I'm so tired of being treated like I'm a second-rate God. I just wish somebody would shut the doors. Put this on my notes. I don't think I put it on yours. You may want to write it down. God would rather shut the doors to worship instead of allowing mediocre devotion to Him. 
God says, I'd prefer that you just shut the doors rather than have this mediocre devotion to me. Imagine going to church this Sunday and it's all locked up. You're coming to Mount Airy this Sunday and it's all locked up and there's a sign on the door that says, closed until further notice, God. Signed by God. Closed, big bold letters, closed until further notice, signed God. That's what was happening here. But I want you to see another word in verse 10 that that grabbed my attention. Verse 10, he says, Oh, that you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light... What's that next word? Useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. That, that word useless, talk, it, it's the idea that it's, it's useless because it's heartless. I don't want to write that down. It's useless because it's heartless. They were not devoted to the Lord. Their, their heart was not in it. They were offering God the lame sacrifices that they didn't want. It was useless to the Lord because it was heartless. Then that brings us to number three. God calls us to be authentic in our service. Beginning in verse, uh, well, let's read verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In other words, remember in verse 10 he said, I just wish somebody would shut the doors of the temple. He, but, but then in verse 11 he says, but I want to tell you something. My name will still be honored across the world to all the nations. You can shut the doors of the temple, but my name will still be honored across the world. Can I say to you, and I mean this with great respect, I'm trying to honor our Lord. Can I say to you, God is not dependent on Mount Airy Baptist Church. God is not dependent on Pastor Keith Shorter. His name will be honored around the world because of who he is. We may or may not get the opportunity to help others hear about the Lord, but His name will be honored. I want to tell you why. Can I tell you why? Because He is the Lord Almighty. And so God makes this point in verse 11. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings, not just offerings, but pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name, he says it again, will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. I love that. I love verse 11. But then we come to verse 12 through 14 where God calls us to be authentic in our service. But you profane it. You profane my holy name by saying of the Lord's table, It is defiled, and of its food, it is contemptible. You say, watch this, what a a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is is the cheat, who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. 
sooner or later the emptiness of your religion will show. Sooner or later the emptiness of your religion will show. That's what was happening here. And their, their religion became a drudgery. Their religion became a boredom. Their religion became a dull routine. And when religion becomes dull routine, you begin to serve God out of habit rather than because He's worthy of it. When religion becomes dull routine, you're going through the motions rather than giving God the honor and glorifying His name. And the most stinging indictment is in verse 14 when God says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. The, the, the cheat, the deceiver. Not a worshiper, he's a cheat, God says. He's not a worshiper, he's a deceiver. And here's what they were doing. They, they would vow, they would vow that they're this holy, or this, this uh, healthy male animal would be the sacrifice that they give, but the one that they actually carried to the temple was not that one. The one they carried to the temple was the sick one. The relationship with the Lord had gotten so twisted that they thought it was okay to give God the sick one. They thought, well, it's just for God. It'll be okay. Outwardly, now watch this. Outwardly, they appeared to be dedicated because they were still bringing their sacrifices. Outwardly, they appeared to be dedicated. Inwardly, they were destitute. Let me give you this lesson. We're going to close. This last lesson. God is more frustrated with your apathetic worship than you are bored with it. When you read Malachi chapter 1, God is very frustrated with the apathetic worship of His people. He is more frustrated than they are even bored with it. In verses 12 through 14, they are definitely bored with their worship. And God says, you profane my name. Because you're acting like this is a burden. When actually, you should be coming to bless me. When worship becomes a burden, the problem is not God. worship becomes boring problem is not God when worship becomes a dull routine the problem is not God God is far more frustrated with your apathetic worship than you are bored with it That is the message of Malachi 1.
And really, that's where we live. That's where we all live. We have to make sure I'm authentic. Not perfect. I don't know that I've lived a perfect day in my life. Maybe the first day I was born. I don't know about that one. We're not perfect. But are we authentic? If your relationship with God is half-hearted, if your relationship with God seems distant, here's what you do. Admit it to Him. He already knows. You're not informing Him. But before He can relight the flame, did you hear, did you hear how I worded that? Before He can relight the flame, you need to admit that you need Him too. David cried out in a prayer, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David couldn't restore it. David couldn't relight the flame, but he knew God could. And David admitted it to God. And David admitted his sin before God. And David cried out, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God already knows. He's just waiting for you to admit you need Him to do a fresh work in your life. So Father, thank You for helping us, teaching us, confronting us with the truth of Malachi. And may our worship to You be genuine. And it will never be perfect, but may it be genuine. May it be real. And if it's not, may You work in our hearts so that we can be authentic in our relationship and in our worship. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for tuning in.